Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that takes a look at the news of the day. We have thoughtful conversations about things that matter. Today, we'll hear from Peter Kirsten. He's a partner with Benesh's Labor and Employment Practice Group. He's also a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Podcast. I'm Claude Jennings, producer of the show. Dr. Bennett and Peter Kersenow's conversation is coming up momentarily. Uh, but first, we recorded the show with Peter the day of the Chauvin verdict. Of course, we didn't know at the time that the verdict was going to come out later that day. So Bill and I got on the phone two days afterwards just to process things and prepare some remarks and thoughts on the verdict. This is Bill on the phone sharing his thoughts. And then right afterwards, we're going to get to the interview with Peter Kersenow. You know, to certain claims like you can't convict to police officer for killing a black man. Well, they just did. And to me, it wasn't, it wasn't clear that it was second-degree murder. Certainly reckless disregard of human life. So, and I could see the third count, but not the first two. But, you know, the jury was, uh, they came back fast. They didn't like all three. There is a fair amount of sentiment thought about people saying that jury wasn't sequestered. They had the weekend before the verdict uh, at home. They were watching TV, seeing the crowds. They were scared to death to come out with any other verdict. Jurors know that people can find out who they are, where they live. You know, angry crowd. If you were the holdout juror for innocent, you could be in trouble. So I think that's very possible. This, of course, may be basis for an appeal. Uh, the crowds, the announcement of the $27 million that the city gave to the Floyd family before the verdict could affect the jurors. And, of course, Maxine Waters out there talking about the need for confrontation. They're not helpful. I don't think they'll win on appeal, but I think they have a pretty good appeal. Uh, basis for appeal. A few odd things, though. Nancy Pelosi gave a talk and almost canonized George Floyd, uh, said, uh, you know, you you sacrificed your life for justice. I, I don't know, you know, and they have it some places on a cross. Do we have to uh, apotheosize, canonize, wash all the sin away from George Floyd in order to say that this was a just verdict? Do we have to, because we're saying Chauvin was a bad dude and should go to jail, does that require us to say that Floyd was a great, great guy and a saint? Shouldn't. You know, I think it's Chekhov who wrote its great sentence. You don't become a saint through other people's sins. So he doesn't become great because, you know, I was just looking at his arrest record again. I don't want to go through all this, but, you know, some pretty horrible stuff, including holding a pistol to the belly of an eight-month pregnant woman and saying, I want your drugs and your money. I mean, this was no saint. This was no guy who gave his life for justice. Uh, He died. You know, the jury found that he died unjustly. Someone's got to pay for it. But um, it would be wrong to make make him a saint. Absolutely wrong. One other thing, which is odd, and and actually two other things. One one of them is uh, the new attorney general, Merrick Garland, announced there would be a probe of the Minneapolis Police Department justice investigation probe. What the hell for? What is wrong with the Minneapolis Police Department? Well, that's Chauvin's department. Well, I know. But, you know, he was convicted largely on the basis of that videotape. But I would say the second reason was this parade of police officers and police officials and the chief saying, this is not what we do. The guy who trained him, the chief, the other officers saying, no, no, this is not how we behave. So what do you need to probe the Minneapolis Department for? Say, well, those other three cops who were there, well, they're going on trial. That'll be the inquiry there. That'll take care of that. But, you know, the Minneapolis Police Department, you know, I think if you were totally rooting for a conviction, you got to be cheering them. They they stepped up and stepped up against their own guy. 
and you know the loyalty in the Thin Blue Line is legendary. So mm-hmm. you know they stepped up and did that. So you know, good for them. Good for them. I, I just this is just federal government saying we're going to look into this. Just you know, just like they did with the Michael Brown thing. Of course, they found no no wrongdoing by the cops. But uh, we'll see. That's the way it is. All right. This is not about Chauvin. This is about Columbus, Ohio. Police uh, shot a young woman who was uh, wielding a knife, according to everyone there, according to the video. Uh, and everyone there who was on the scene, and she was attacking another young woman, and the police uh, shot her and killed her. Notice um, this uh, young black woman is in a scene of uh, you know horror with a knife-wielding other woman who's trying to stab. She makes a 911 call, and her last sentence is, we need a police officer here now. I just want to pause on that sentence. We need a police officer here now. So the people who are talking about defund the police and no police need to listen to that. You know, supposing you had an experiment in Minneapolis or New York or anywhere, you just didn't respond to the community when you got called like that. Because there are people, I just mean to be very candid about this, there are people, you know, from Black Lives Matter and others saying, we don't need the police, we don't want the police. Are they speaking for the black community? I, no, they're not. It's clearly not. But you want to test the proposition. Want to do an experiment? Take a community, you know, the most crime-affected community in Minneapolis or New York or Boston or Seattle or D.C. and just please not respond to the calls. Hey, we're listening to some of the leadership here, some of the loudest voices. Well, those loudest voices don't represent the black community. Again, so that sentence, we need a police officer here now. And the call happens a lot of times in the day. All right, good, very good. Uh, let's uh, invite you to listen now to my conversation with Peter Kirstenau. Believe me, uh, this was earlier in the week before the verdict, but uh, it is very, very good. Thanks, folks. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Okay, let's welcome Peter Kirstenau to the show. He's a partner with Benesha's Labor and Employment Practice Group. He's also a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Peter, thank you. Let's jump in. Um, let's go to the general point. Institutional racism, country that's racist. First of all, it's irrelevant to me, but it is relevant to the national conversation. You know what you're talking about. You regard yourself as a black man. I'm black. I've been a member of you. I've been black all my life. One parent was one black. One parent right? black, one parent white. Yes. What's the what's the rule here? The rule is I, I, that if you have it's the one drop rule. And it's the one drop rule that came from the old oh. Okay. You know, uh, 1870s and, and all okay. rules, but also in our current wokeness, one drop makes you whatever the left says you are. Why not institutional racism? Why not this charge? Why is it not true that there's systemic racism in the U.S.? It's not true because, well, I don't know if in this case, Derek Chauvin was motivated by racism, but we're talking about systemic racism, structural racism, institutional racism as critical race theory posits. And what it says is that all of our systems are flawed from the founding and are irredeemably racist. They are, they are structured as white supremacist institutions. That's critical race theory, and it's based on a complete falsehood for a number of reasons, and it'll take a, long, a little bit of time to explain it, but more fundamentally, in the last, at least in my lifetime, it, since my childhood, since at least the 1964 Civil Rights Act, there's been racism in the country. Uh, there's been individual cases of racism, hor- horrific in- cases of racism, but systemic racism since 1964, you'd be hard pressed to actually find it. And I've always asked individuals when they talk about systemic racism is give me an example. Give me an example of a, a system that is intrinsically racist in 2021. 
or 1981, and you'd be very hard-pressed to find anything. In fact, the places where there are systemic racism, it's the obverse of what we expect. In our educational establishments, there is unequivocally systemic racism, but it's not the systemic racism which the major media and the prevailing uh, narrative speaks. As you know, Bill, there's a lawsuit right now, Students for Fair Admissions Against Harvard, and there have been other lawsuits that maintain that whites and Asians are discriminated against in higher education. It's unequivocally the case. Full disclosure, I have an amicus brief before the Supreme Court related to that. I've been involved in these kinds of endeavors for a long time just because it's irrefutable. It is the data are irrefutable that blacks and, sorry, whites and Asians are discriminated against in favor of Hispanics and blacks. And the discrimination is not slight. It's not merely a thumb on the scale, as they said in Gruder and Gratz. It is an anvil on the scale. In many schools, Blacks are similarly situated, that is, same GPAs, same SATs, come from the same area of the country, maybe the same extracurriculars. In some institutions, Blacks are not 10%, not 30%, not 40%, but 50,000% more likely to be admitted over their similarly situated white or Asian comparators. In the Harvard case, the evidence seduced there, and Harvard even had to admit it, the evidence seduced at Harvard is that similarly situated applicants, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, Asians are, or blacks are four times more likely to be admitted over a similarly situated white comparative and 10 times more likely to be admitted over a similarly situated Asian comparative. That pervades across the spectrum, educational spectrum. It's not just at Harvard, it's at Yale, it's at Cornell, it's at Stanford, it's all over the place. And what's distinguishing now in the last year or two, and some of this has been fueled by the George Floyd incident, is that now we have institutions that are are, are proclaiming that they are discriminating on the basis of race. They're going yeah. out there saying that yeah. we want, you know, the, the one that comes into yeah. mind is not an educational institution, but United Airlines. That says, contrary to law, unequivocally, contrary to law, yeah. well, 50% are going to be uh, either minority or, or female. You can't do that. United States versus Weber. I mean, I'm sorry, Steelworkers versus Weber. You can't do something like that. Let me ask you this. Uh, Princeton, I know, I know you know about this, uh, had this long thing, this confessional about being racist. And I thought it was kind of interesting, right, and kind of hilarious that under the Trump administration, the Department of Education said, oh, you are? Well, we better look into this and not give you federal money. And they said, oh, no, no, we were just, you know what they said. They were basically, they said, we're just posturing. We don't really believe we are. But let me tell you this. I don't think you know this. Hard to find something, Claude, that Peter doesn't know. Victor Davis Hanson informed me that at Princeton this year in the admissions office, by the way, both my sons went to Princeton. As they said, if we weren't big jocks, we wouldn't have gotten in. The 38% of the entering class is white. I thought it was 28, actually. Oh, all right. You do know it. Okay. Well, it was 28, and then then I think it went up. But this is hardly representative, if you will. And they're clearly discriminating against white kids. Uh, and will there be will there be any hell to pay here? Is that case with the Asians in Harvard? Is that on appeal to the Supreme Court? It is. I filed about three weeks ago an amicus brief in the Supreme Court. There were 20 other amicus briefs filed by individuals or organizations that are challenging the admissions program at Harvard and maintaining that it's unlawful. And at Princeton, as you indicated, you know, their president went out there about a year ago and was going on and on and on about all the racism at Princeton. And to his credit, Eric Dryband, who was head of civil rights of the Department of Justice under Trump, said, oh, really? Because you, as Princeton, in order to get certain financial benefits or federal benefits, certified 
that you are not engaging in any kind of discrimination. So we're going to have to conduct an investigation here because you admitted that you are doing so contrary to your sworn affidavits. So they're up in arms. And as you indicated, now they're saying, oh, no, 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 no. We're just, you know, this is boozing yeah. above us, basically. All right. Except at the level. And then the Trump administration, I'm sorry, the Biden administration, only about a week or two into its his presidency, dropped that investigation. Um, And there was a similar investigation with another institution. uh, I can't remember which one it was. And they dropped that one, too. Yeah. Let's talk about America. I was uh, I'm in North Carolina. I was over in a small community, small city, North Carolina yesterday, doing a variety of things, seeing a doctor, going to stores. And I was just kind of taking note at this uh, clinic where I went to have a test. Lots of older, including myself, Southern white people. I'm not Southern, but they, they were Southern. Six, eight, ten people waiting room. Lots of young black nurses, assistants, people who take your registration, people who, you know, wheel you around, take you to this examining room or another. It was almost all black and younger than the older people who were being cared for. The interactions between these generations and races was natural and easy and friendly. And it didn't seem forced. Mm-hmm. And it didn't seem surprising to me, you know, e- even though I am in the South, you know, pretty deep in the South. It just seems to me the way the world is, or at least the way American life is. I said the other day, maybe I'm wrong, 90, 95% of the interactions between white people and black people in this country are smooth and easy and friendly and basically are not distinguishable from interactions of white people with white people, black people with black people. Is what I saw anomalous or typical? No, no, it's not. I don't think it is. I mean, I could tell you a number of vignettes about my travels in the United States, like in Mississippi and Alabama, um, and some of the prejudices I went there with because of what I'd read or heard before having gone down there. And again, this is 40 years ago or 30 years ago. But nonetheless, I don't think, I think your, your experience is the standard experience. It's not what is being reported in the media. It's not what our politicians on the left say, because they have a certain perspective that they need to promote in order to justify uh, votes for them, in order to justify the policy positions that they prefer. They have to dis- display a United States of America that is flawed, is racist, in order to justify doing some of the, frankly, unjustifiable policy prescriptions that they're, they're implementing. But a couple points. One is that in the South and other places where I've been, in unwoke places, let's say, uh, I have found this natural type of interaction. And I feel sometimes very comfortable with individuals that are viewed as being deplorables by the Hillary Clintons of the world, more comfortable yeah. than I do dealing with the Ivies. I went to an Ivy League school, you know, and probably- Where'd you, I, where'd you go? Where'd you went go? To Cornell, went to Cornell. Oh, yeah. I had yeah, problems yeah. with Cornell. My daughter went to Cornell also, to, mainly to rehabilitate the family name. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, the, the fact of the matter is, when I'm dealing with the ostensible elites, and there's, been po- there, there's actually been studies that the elites, that is, people who have, you know, a usually more than one degree, when they're speaking to black people, they're doing so in a condescending way. Yeah. There have been a Princeton study, in fact, where um, some folks on the left were actually surprised about the results of the study. So-called elites on the yeah. left. I'm not surprised. Yeah. And that's been my experience, Bill. I can tell you yeah. throughout my life, I'm usually, ha- I, I have been very often. The old thing was that guys of my age were often the first black ex, you know, first yeah. black yeah. partner, yeah. all that stuff. And I experienced that, you know, um, 
on a regular basis. Now, I got a thick skin. I just let it roll off of me and I go bed, go ahead and do my work and just prove to them that, you know, look, I'm as good as anybody. Having said that, it's also consistent with certain polling data that you see. Um, the outlook that certain classifications of people have toward black and brown people. And almost, it's an overwhelming number of so-called elites, mainly on the left, who they b- betray a certain, for like yes. certain racism against black and brown people that folks in the South or the deplorable yeah. don't yeah. Yeah, it's truly it's amazing, and it's not and there's by a, the media, of course, but it is true. And there's Gallup data yeah. to look at, and I, I've examined this very closely. Um, you know, race relations in this country in 2007, there were actually, it was, I think, the number was 74 percent of blacks thought race relations were either good or very good, and I think the number for for whites was 71 or 72 percent, about the same, but slightly higher for blacks. Then we had the first black president. It was supposed to be a racial nirvana. And today, those figures have dropped for both categories, blacks and whites, by more than 30% in terms of satisfaction with race relations. Uh, and you have to ask yourself, why? Has there been a, you know, an outpouring of, of unbridled racism in the country? Uh, you know, what's going on there? And what's going on is we have critical race theory in the schools. We have a narrative that's developed, fueled in part by the first black president in a very subtle way that in fact, you know, there's discrimination abroad in the land. Uh, And I'm not saying there isn't individual cases of discrimination. I'm an employment lawyer and I'm on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. But this narrative of systemic, structural, institutional racism is a calumny. It is a lie and it's hurting us badly. Go back to what Thomas Sowell said. Um, We're at a tipping point here. We're we're beyond the point of no return. Do the the numbers again, 2007. Um, 2007 Don't quote me exactly, but I'm pretty close. I think it was 74% for blacks saying race relations were good or very good and 71% for uh, whites. And it's dropped approximately 30 points. I think right now they're both below 50% with whites having a slightly better by maybe one or two percentage points view of race relations by like maybe 48% to 46%. Thinking it's I'm gonna, good or very good. I, I want to talk a little bit intermittently and let you comment on three things. It's kind of a, just my own thoughts on it. And, and please be brutally honest. One, I agree with everything you've said. Two, it seems to me the more attention we bring to race, the more trouble we'll have. I mean, if you don't want people to think in racial terms and be discriminating, stop thinking in racial terms. Is that right. fair? I, I couldn't agree more. Okay. And okay. I will tell you also, just as a quick aside, um, I sit at my desk in my law firm, but because I'm in the Civil Rights Commission, I very often get phone calls almost on a daily basis. And clearly emails on a more than daily basis. I get several emails a day from parents who may have seen me in some forum or maybe on Tucker Carlson or something like that. And they contact me because their kids are in schools where they're being subjected to some of the most vile, evil, and I'm not using those terms cavalierly, instruction that you can possibly give to little kids. One parent told me, uh, strike that, the parent didn't tell me this, they described what they had read about their school, apparently one of the kids at the school that his child was going to said that the child ran home and, and at crying saying, why do Hispanics hate me? But I've heard similar things from other parents that the kind of instruction they're being given is so race concentrated. Everything is viewed through the prism of race. You can't right. help at that point then become racist. It's not healthy. It's destructive. We were at a better place maybe 30 years ago. 
I think most people thought Martin Luther King got it right. You're thinking about children. So if you have white children and black children, and they're born and they grow up together, and nobody says anything about race, those kids will not distinguish, will they? They might find certain things, like people make judgments based on, you know, if you get, uh, if you see certain consistent patterns, but it may not be based on race. But they may make judgments, but they're not going to be making the pernicious, invidious right. judgments right. that we define as racism. Right. There's a story in that. Book of Virtues, which is a book I did. Frog child, snake child. And it's got a little frog, baby frog and a baby snake. And they're playing together and they have a wonderful time. And then they each go home and each of their parents says, oh, we don't play with frog children. We don't play with snake children. Children didn't know that. They had to learn that. Right. And now it's reversed. Okay. That, that just come. That's just coming. Third, I am married to a woman from South Carolina. His father grew up in South Carolina, played football at the University of South Carolina, Orangeburg. Uh, my father... New York, the Yankee all his life. I was struck by the ease with which my father-in-law, white man from South Carolina, talked to, business with, joked with black people in South and North Carolina, compared to my father, the Yankee, who regarded black people as other. Other. He was more insulated from, if you will, good relations than my father-in-law, I asked, I told my wife about it. She said, well, you know, in the South, white people, black people for lots of years, dependent on the same conditions, crops, weather, you know, they work together. My father never worked with a black person. Just, just an anecdote. I don't know if it means anything, but I'm beginning to believe that the relations are better in North Carolina, where I'm sitting now, or South Carolina, despite what liberals think, than they are at Princeton, yeah. where they're forced and patronizing use your word. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. That's been my experience. The North likes to think and probably thought this from the Civil War that they're somehow enlightened when it comes to race relations, but that's not been my personal experience. And I couldn't, and I've had some of the warmest interactions with people of with those who might be characterized by as deplorables and mainly from the South. Whereas, By the way, I think, I think Biden's guilty of this. I said the other night on TV, I think he's got a big anti-Southern bias. You know, Georgia, just prima facies, you know, racist Texas. You know, as a Neanderthal uh, says to people in Georgia, smarten up. This is the classic Yankee, yeah. as my wife would say, you know, uh, condescension to the to the South. But I actually think these relations are better here, better than what I grew up with in New York. Yeah, I, I think that may be the case. And the concern is that now that we've been so minutely focused on race, that that kind of thing is going to disappear and the entire country is going to become you know, a, a giant racial cauldron. Uh, we're, it, we're at a, I, I can't emphasize it enough that what I've seen in my 20 years on the Civil Rights Commission, what I've experienced during my entire life has not had anything remotely close to what I'm seeing right now in terms of the potential danger to American cohesion, racial cohesion, than what we're seeing. Yeah. We're actively going out there. If you look at some of the inspection but, materials, they are yeah. astonishing. No, I know. But something that defies so obviously and directly the obvious interaction of human experience, the daily felt thing. What are you going to believe? Your, your own life or what you're reading, you know, yeah. your your own eyes or, you know, what I'm telling you. That's why I, I don't think Soul's right. I'm sure as hell hope he's not. He's a very smart guy. Do you think it's over? I'm very concerned. Um, I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist. So I think that, um, you know, I don't agree that we're necessarily at the point of no return. And Sol doesn't quite say that. He's asked by Peter Robinson. Okay. But Sol oh, yeah. kind of alludes that, yeah, this is the crucial okay. 
time. Yeah, yeah. Don't vanquish wokeism in the next couple of years because I've never seen it yeah. decline as fast as this one. Yeah. In the next couple of years, it may be irreversible. All right. Last thing I want to ask you about. You mentioned King. Boy, I thought I was so brilliant. I, yesterday night. I said, hey, I figured out why they don't use King. Maybe they want to take his statue down because he said, the interviewer said, why? Well, because he said not the color of your skin, but the content of your character. That's actually right, isn't it? I mean, his message was don't focus on the color of your skin. Focus right. on the content of character. The exact, the exact opposite of what we're being taught today in the woke. Yeah. Uh, and there were a number of us who said, King's statue would eventually come down. And I think I may have seen you on a show sometime where you you expressed concern about, you know, the George Washingtons of the world. And of course, that was at a point where it was not even thought that that was plausible. And sure enough, you know, after the George Floyd verdict, virtually everybody was at risk. Every founding father, anybody who was a white male prior to, say, 1900 was at risk of coming down where, where, uh, you know, purging Shakespeare and others from literature, yeah. all on the basis of race. The presumption is if you have no melanin, then you have no ethics and uh, you have, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. you're just an evil person. This is, it's extraordinary what's going on and it harms all races. It doesn't benefit anybody. It harms all races because, among other things, if you look at the critical race instruction, the 1619 project, there's this almost presumption of, you know, the old little little brown brother kind of syndrome where blacks and people of color are helpless. That is that they don't have agency. Yeah. No matter what yeah. structures, uh, you know, redound against them, they can't, you know, rise above that. And it, that is inherently racist. On this King thing, I went back because I remembered this. When King went, to the, this ties in what we're just talking about with the point about the North and the South. I don't know if you remember this. You're too young, but maybe you read it. King, when he went to Chicago, went to Cicero, Illinois, and people threw rocks at him, hit him in the head, knocked him down. And when he got back home, he said, I, I've never experienced the kind of hatred I saw there in the South. Um, he said it was the worst. He said, and I don't just mean the rock. I just mean I saw it in people's eyes. The contempt, the utter contempt. It was an interesting observation. Here he is. And all these curricular materials and all this stuff, stuff I've seen, he doesn't come up, right? Right. He's like one of the great figures of the 20th century, at least in terms of his teachings. Right. And I remember the photo in Chicago. There was a photo of a bunch of young white men with their T-shirts on, you know, sleeves rolled up. And the look on their faces was just sheer hatred. I remember that as a young kid. I remember seeing that photo. Um, but you're right that he is being largely purged. He's just disfavored by the woke left now because everything is about race. If you look at Kendi, for example, the, how to be an anti-racist, the focus is relentlessly on pigmentation, relentlessly yeah. on race. And that's what critical race theory is all about. Yeah. It will not end well. Yeah. Okay, Victor Davis Hanson believes that we may see the light at the end of the tunnel through an odd turn of events. You ready for this? He said, because the gatekeepers, the elites, the same guys who said, oh, we're racist at Princeton, and then said, oh, whoa, whoa, no, no, we were just posturing in order not to lose the federal funds. He said, when those parents of those kids who've gone to Harvard, Westlake, and St. Albans, and whatever else, their kids don't get into Princeton or Harvard because they're white, That'll be the end. Yeah. <laughs> I think there may be some of that. And, and I also think I've got a little bit of encouragement from the kids themselves. 
again, you know, I'm not necessarily a bellwether, but I do get a lot of phone calls or emails from people um, about what they're experiencing out there. And I can tell you, oh, one, what, just as an observation, Bill, I used to go speak on law school and college campuses on a regular basis. A lot of debates. About five or six years ago, the debates came to a complete end. And I asked a few people like Heather McDonald and, and others who regularly engage in debates, whether or not they experienced that. And they had also that number of debates that they've been invited to completely stop because the left doesn't want to debate these propositions. But nonetheless, when I go out and I speak to some of the young folks, you know, just last week I was speaking at a law school and the week before that I was speaking at, a, at not at a law school, but by Zoom to a law school class. Um, I do see kind of a, um, a backlash developing as you naturally would expect, but you, it, people are afraid because of cancel culture. They're afraid of being out there about this stuff. Yeah. Nonetheless, you can sense from what they say, their comments and the invitations I get to speak that they know in their hearts that there's something. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good. So the young must save us. And maybe Mr. Gutman, that father at the Brearley School in New York, you know. That was that was phenomenal. And that's the kind of thing that we're hearing more of. Now, that was particularly erudite, but we are seeing more and more of that even in the phone calls I get from parents who might be you know, mechanics telling me that, you know, can yeah. see something? these people get it. They get it and they're passionate about it. And they believe in the, the essential goodness of the United States of American people and its institutions. And they don't want to see it denigrated by the elites who are, they, they act as if they have yeah, yeah. superiority. Uh, Mr. Gutman, I, you know, I saw him, he looks about 45. And I was talking about it with a friend who's always pessimistic, who said, yeah, he's plenty white and he's plenty mad and he's also plenty rich. And he can, he can he can afford to pull that off. He's not going to lose his job. I that, guess exactly he made right. a killing as an investment banker. He doesn't give a damn what anybody right. thinks. But there are a lot of people worried about getting fired yeah. for saying, you know, uh, you know, uh, virtually anything. I don't know. I just think I, I think of Vaclav Havel who said we saw the sides and we knew it was a lie. And the weight of the lie sooner or later will make it fall. The lie will fall. It's so untrue to people's experience, unless everybody just starts acting weird, you know, like it, like it matters, unless everybody starts acting like race matters. Right. When in fact, for the vast majority of people, it does. Years ago, I read a very bad novel, bad in terms of writing, but it was intriguing. It was called, I believe, IQ 84, the premise of which was that some virus had been unleashed that caused everybody's IQs to fall proportionately so nobody knew that or realized people were getting dumber um and i think <laughs> i'm wondering yeah. whether some type of virus has been yeah, in conjunction with coronavirus that we're we're in one of these lunatic phases in in civilization uh that maybe somehow the virus has to work itself out before we return to some semblance of normalcy no it's as long as it doesn't trickle down yeah. if you hear this stuff from the elites but then you go out and you talk to regular people you talk to your waiter you know, they're fine you know Right. Right. Thank you, Peter. God love you. You are rare and unusual and fabulous and brilliant. And we love you. Always fun, Bill. Thanks for inviting me. That does it for today's show. Catch up on previous episodes of the show. Go to the BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Bill Bennett Podcast gmail.com please share the podcast with your family and friends we'll catch up next week 